We're going to look at that. You're probably thinking, no, I wasn't even thinking that. <laughs> but you should have been thinking that, okay? So, hey, uh, let, let's, uh, let's begin. I want to just uh, tell you about, I was going to show my iPhone. Has anyone got an iPhone here? May I just borrow it? Do you want it back? Okay, look, iPhone 6, 7? 6, okay. Do you know in later 2019 what's coming out? iPhone 11. iPhone 11. Yeah, you're going to have it back. iPhone 11. Look, and, and do you know how they'll sell it? That's, it won't be any different to the previous one, apart from one or two elements, but it'll be sold with this word, and it always works. New. new. No matter how many dresses you've bought, right, if it's got new on it, there's just something appealing about it. Uh, and, and the point here is, is that new is a great marketing um, tool, thank you, uh, and use all over the world effectively. I want to talk to you this morning, uh, not because I need to market this, but I want to show you something that has got far greater appeal than the new iPhone that's going to be released later in 2019. It's new too. It's the new covenant. And it's incredible. I want to show you from this miracle of Jesus's uh, the wedding where Jesus attends, something of the new covenant. So our heading is this, the old has gone. You can stay, Brenton. The old has gone, the new has come. Okay? The old has gone, the new has come. We're at the wedding of Cana in Galilee. I've got one subheading. Jesus introduces the best. In the last times. You can see where this is going, can't you? Jesus introduces the best in the last times. I want us to look at this wedding beyond just human lenses. This isn't a book authored by humans. It's authored by God through human agency. And I want to show you, I want to show you what's going on in what seems like an ordinary situation. Something unique and incredible. So our, our heading is, Jesus introduces the best in the last times. Let's just go through this passage together. First one, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding. Um, Cana, I'm always, look, I'm used to, can, you, do you, can you do miles? Do I have to do everything in kilometers here? In this weird part of the world. Look, nine miles, okay? 14 kilometers, okay? Just for you, okay? Okay, it's 14 kilometers north of, uh, of where Jesus has grown up in Nazareth. It's a small village. The fact it's close and that Jesus is there with all his uh, disciples, although it's, we're not quite sure it is all his disciples. Up to now, only five have been mentioned, but he's there, his mom's there. It suggests, doesn't it, there's a, this is a family wedding, well, at least the wedding of some close friends that are all there in Canaan of Galilee. And here's where the, 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 the symbolism of biblical truth is coming out. Because Jesus is there at a wedding. Now, John, John, is, John has selected seven of Jesus' miracles. Just seven out of the probably hundreds of thousands that he performed. He's chosen just, that's not seven, is it? Why don't you tell me, Lynn, I can't count. 
tell me. Okay, seven of his miracles, which means everyone has got a very special purpose in John's work. Okay? And he's included this miracle of the wedding. It's not, it's not by chance it's a miracle of the wedding. Straight away, when you think of a wedding as a Jew, you're thinking, as of, you're thinking of the highlight of the year. I remember when I visited my homeland, Bangladesh, that's where I was born, uh, when I was 19, because I grew up in the UK. I went back there when I was 19. And the weddings was the highlight of village life. And if you had poor children who had nothing to do with that wedding, you would dress them up in their best clothes and send them to the wedding for a banquet. Hope nobody will realize that they're not in the, the wedding entourage. Yeah, and so look, weddings in Jewish culture are the highlight of a year. It's, it, it's, it's almost picture for Jews, some, because the banquet and the celebration and the reveling, it pictured for them something of the eschatological period of when the Messiah would come and he would bring this great banquet to Israel. It would be the great wedding banquet. So the very fact that John is including Jesus' first miracle at the wedding and to Jews, he's preparing you. Can you see what he's preparing you for? That this is gonna, this has got eschatological overtones. That just means the end. Okay. It, it's, it's, it's looking beyond. It's, it may be pointing to the feast. So Jesus is at the wedding. It's his first miracle. Well, you notice what's happened now here? Verse 3, uh, the, the, the wine uh, has gone. It's run out. You were there, weren't you, Lee? Okay, right. So the, the wine is gone. And now look, it, 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 you might be thinking, oh, come on, now. how do you drink all the wine? These things go on for days. If you've been to an Indian wedding, they go on for several days. Jewish weddings went on for days. You know, you're having to provide a lot of wine. You weren't just providing wine because you wanted people to get drunk. Wine was the best form of drink you could get in the day. Uh, and, you know, and you provided because it was you know, a luxury, pleasant drink. So this wine has gone, completely gone. Mary's involved. Look, when the wine has gone, Jesus' mother says to Jesus they have no wine. Why do you think she's getting involved? What, what's it got to do with her? She, well, she knows that about Jesus, so she knows he can do something. But particularly, too, we have to assume that she's involved in this wedding. She's a relative. Yeah. And it's of some concern to her. Not only was it shameful to, to run out of uh, anything at the wedding, let alone wine, apparently commentators suggest that you could be legally sued for it. Seriously. Next time you go for a meal, Heather, and there's not enough wine, you're going to call your lawyer. You know, and find out why there isn't enough. And so this it was a serious situation. There was some gravity. Jesus' mother comes to him. She brings it to him. She possibly thinks he can do something spectacular. She could possibly even be thinking, look, by now, it's, it's generally accepted that Jesus' father has passed away. Because he's never on the scene. Jesus is referred to as the carpenter. And so he's the firstborn. Uh, Mary's husband is not there. What kind of relationship has she now got with Jesus? What's he doing for the family? Yeah, he's providing. He's acting as the provider, the one who takes care of the household. So when there's no wine at this wedding and Mary or Jesus is related to this family, it's natural. She turns to who she always turns to when they need something. Jesus, you know, my firstborn, can you help me? Can you do something? 
So whether it's a miracle, whether it's something else, who knows? It's not clear, but she turns to Jesus. Jesus' response, listen to this, and it's critical because this is a turning point in Jesus' relationship with Mary. Woman, dear woman, you know, and woman is not used derogatively there. It's just a, a, a phrase that was used back then. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Can you see how Jesus is, and he's changing his relationship to his earthly mother? Why do you involve me? He's effectively saying, you know, you know, why are you instructing me? Up to now, Jesus has been under his mother's care, no doubt, even as an adult. And there's been a, an element of him coming under authority. It's almost at this juncture where Jesus' ministry is now taking off, now developing, now growing. Jesus, we'll go back up one quickly, please. Meg, don't let him see that. Thank you. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, is that this relationship is is developing whereby now Jesus is stepping into his role as the son of God and therefore as, as master of Mary. It's, there's a change in relationship and that's what that says on there. Listen to this, look. He cannot act under her authority but must instead follow the course that has been determined by him from God or by God. He can't be under Mary's oversight. And he almost seems to be making a point is that there's a transition going on here. Jesus must now lead Mary. She must now come under his authority as every disciple of Jesus must come under his authority. Mary too. And so there's this transition going on in verse 4 then. Why do you involve me? Jesus replied. And then notice again, and this is we have to remember, remember, John is writing uh, a whole book here. He's using seven miracles to get across his message. And he uses, Jesus uses these words that John records in Greek. My time has not yet come. The issue is, when you translate it from one language to another, there's real issues. Uh, next slide, please. Because you can't translate things properly. And so when the NIV says, my time has not yet come, the word is actually our or Hora in Greek, okay? It means hour. And it's a very important word in John because John repeatedly uses that one Greek word whenever he's talking about one event in Jesus' life. The crucifixion, the hour has come, the hour of his trial, the hour of his death. And so what Jesus is saying, can you see what he's doing? And again, it's so deeply in, embedded in it, it does take some working out. But we had the, a marriage. Marriage speaks of the eschatological marriage. Okay, Jesus is saying, and Mary wants him to engage in this wedding, and Jesus is saying his hour hasn't come. The hour of his death hasn't come. The hour that would make an eschatological marriage possible hasn't come. You see, what makes the eschatological banquet of the marriage between us and Jesus possible is his death. And it's almost as a, can you see how John is using imagery to portray a deeper message by which Jesus is saying, it's not the hour, but the hour will come. An hour will come when Jesus dies for the sins of the world and that death will facilitate a wedding, not in Cana, but in the kingdom. It will be a banquet, a celebration of a union. And so already we've seen in John a, a, a ripple which will echo through the book, which will lead to his death, which will facilitate the eschatological wedding banquet of the future. 
And so he's saying, look, it's not time for that. My hour for providing for the wedding isn't yet. And so his mother submits and to his authority and wisdom. And look, look how she responds. She's obviously worked out he is going to do something. And so his mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She puts all, so she's got some authority here, hasn't she? Uh, she's, this must definitely be some relation she's at. She's got authority to speak like this to the servants. You know, you know, you, you don't just turn to somebody else's servant and tell them what to do. So Mary's obviously got some established relationship. She puts them all under Jesus' authority. So Jesus now is Lord and here in doing that she's simultaneously submitting to that authority herself and so then begins the miracle verse 6 nearby stood six stone water jars okay the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing look let me just let me start here they're stone and not clay okay if there was an issue with clay jars in, 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 in Palestine is they were no good for ceremonial or spiritual use because they got dirty. They could be contaminated. And so you, ended up, you, you had to just break them. But it was believed by Pharisees at least that there was something about stone that meant it couldn't be contaminated. So stone vessels were used therefore for what? Yeah, washing of the ceremonial type. It, it sense why it's in the verse. Look, they were stone, not clay, which means they were reserved for spiritual activity. They were used for ceremonial washing to prepare someone to worship God. You could not worship God properly. In fact, I hope you've done it. You're not allowed to worship God without washing in a prescribed way before you enter into an act of worship. If you were in the Old Covenant, you'd have to do that. Otherwise, we'd have to banish you. With joy, okay? Uh, and, and so the point is, so these, he takes hold of instruments that are specifically reserved for the worship of God. And that's the point here. Ceremonial ones, stone jars. And so, so you begin to wonder where this miracle is going. Let me take you back. John chapter 1, here's some simple maths. Okay, John chapter 1, follow, it's John chapter 1, John, I can't do simple maths, can I? <laughs> Don't follow me, I'll get you lost. Okay, John chapter 2 is preceded by John chapter 1, okay, which must mean, even to a Wally like me, okay, it must mean that John chapter 1 has something to paint of the context of John chapter 2. Can you see the point that these things are developing? So in order to get the context of this miracle, you have to at least ask yourself, what is chapter 1 saying? You know, this is built up to the miracle. So here's John chapter 1. I want to show you how the miracle is introduced. Let me put these on. It's much easier to see if I get these things on. Okay, look at that. HD. Wow. So, uh, so look, John chapter 1. Is that good? I don't know where I am. Oh, here I am. Okay, John chapter 1. Look, this is how it begins. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. See, it doesn't mean anything to us. It, it would mean something to a Jew, because he's, this is a Greek word, eskonosin, okay? It's the word here. This, there it is. It means, there's a Greek word, it means what? That's a very important word to Jews. 
It means what? It's there. Yeah, tabernacle or temple. It means tabernacle. Okay, so a Jew is reading the word Jesus came amongst us and made his tabernacle in our midst. What is that, what is that saying by Jesus? What did the tabernacle do to, to Jews? What did he bring to Jews who came into the tabernacle? The presence of God. Can you see what this is doing? The word Jesus is bringing the presence of God into our midst. He's bringing the tabernacle, the old covenant tabernacle. Jesus is the Old Testament tabernacle. He's the place where you meet God. And so John is introducing Jesus as the tabernacle where we meet God. Notice what he says in verse 17 of the same chapter, chapter 1. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So already in chapter 1, John is building his argument to the, to the wedding. And you're already thinking about the tabernacle, the law. So what are you thinking about now? It begins with the letter C. Because it's in two words, O and C. What are you thinking about? Moses, law, the tabernacle. What are you thinking of as a Jew? Old Covenant. You're now thinking of... So you're introduced to the wedding with already as the canvas, the Old Covenant. One who's here, who is superior. Look, look he's, he brings grace. He brings something better than the previous one. He brings the presence of God. So that leads you to verse 6. Look. Nearby stood six water jars, the stone water jars, the kind used for Jewish ceremonial washing. So, so verse 6 is picking up the very same thing of... Chapter 1, verse 14, chapter 1, verse 17, chapter 2, verse 6. We're now thinking Old Testament. We're now thinking Old Covenant. We're now thinking Old Covenant regulations. We're now thinking what the Old Covenant does and then what Jesus does. Listen to this. Verse 7. He said to the servants, Fill the jars with water so that they are filled to the brim. These are 20-gallon Jars multiplied by six of them that makes 110 gallons. You're not listening, are you? 120. Yeah, that was a test to make sure you're awake. Okay, so there's a lot of here. Look, look, there's something going on here again. Look, he's having these filled, have them filled to the brim. Jesus' ministry. Is filling to the brim the covenant symbolized by these ceremonial jars. Can you see what Jesus is saying about the old covenant and his ministry? What is it doing? He tells us in, have I got it here? Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm, let me come back to it. Let me come back to it. Just hold that intention for now, okay? He's, he wants these symbols of the old covenant filled to their brim. Keep that intention. We'll come back to it. Verse 8, then he told them, now draw some water out, take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. Okay, it's the miracle. The water is now wine. I had a friend who really did this. Please don't try it. It's not advised. He ran out of petrol, and he thought to himself, if Jesus can turn water into wine, then he can turn. Have a guess. Water into petrol, and he poured petrol into his petrol tank. Water into his petrol tank. Yeah, it didn't work. 
don't try it, okay? Okay, it's like, you know, this is the deep blue sea. Don't just think, well, Jesus walked across water. I think I can make it just make my way across too. Jesus did his miracles in the very specific context. It's for specific reasons. You know, he doesn't always let us do those same things arbitrarily, okay? So, so look, this is a great miracle. Water has become wine. And listen to this. When they bring it out and everyone drinks it, everyone brings it. And here's what the banquet master says. Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have drunk too much. Okay? Sheepskates. But that's what everybody does. Okay? But you have saved the best till now. Look, it's not an accident, is it? John is laboring a message. He takes, he's only using seven miracles and he picks the wedding miracle. And he's now telling us that this wine that Jesus is a part of, that is instead of the water, is the best anybody's ever tasted. So let's put, the, let's put it all together. It's the best anybody has ever tasted. The wine is instead of water. I think that's how we're meant to look at it. Something common, water, is being replaced by something superior, the best wine. And the point is this, Jesus introduces the best in the last times. So in, in drawing the things together, we now have the jars symbolize the old covenant. He fills them to the brim. He does it at, at a wedding which points eschatologically to the new wedding. We're thinking of the old covenant. Jesus wants to fill these things to the brim. What does he say in Matthew? Without putting it up, uh, uh, Meg. What does he say in Matthew 5? About the law. Okay, what does he... Let me remember what he said. We're thinking about filling these jars to the brim. What does Jesus say about the law in Matthew 5? Can we, can we recall? Uh, that's, that's another one. But it could have been that one. We're going to do that one next time. Yeah, it is to do with fullness, but not leave your lives to the full. That sounds like a Pepsi Max advert. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Michael. Okay. Yes, Jim, that is it. Next one. Thank you, Jim. Do not think I have come to abolish the law. I haven't come to abolish the covenant. What has he come to do to the covenant? To fill it to the brim. Do you get the point? Jesus' ministry wasn't to do away with God's law. It was to fill it to the brink or fulfill it, to bring it to its climax, to bring everything. When he cried on the cross, it is finished. He was referring to that. He had come to fill it, complete it, bring it to a close, bring it to its natural end. And I think what's going on, you know, possibly with the filling of these things to the brim, is Jesus demonstrating that his work is to bring what these symbolize to completion, fullness. Jesus meets every requirement of the covenant, fully, perfectly. He fulfills it. And it's for that reason that he can introduce something that is superior. So he fulfills the old covenant and he puts in place of it something superior. So we're saying that this change of water to wine is symbolizing a change from the old covenant to a new covenant. 
But the change isn't from water to water. What, can, what are we saying about the world? What kind of change is taking place here? It's not just from water to water. It's from water to the best wine. We have to see something as superior. This transition from one covenant to another is something that is incredibly superior. The best wine is anchored in Jesus' work. He brings about the best wine. Here's what we're told in Luke 22. Let me just before quote Luke 22. In order for, for the Mosaic covenant to be established, there had to be what? The, in order for the covenant to be established, yeah, there's a blood sacrifice. Uh, Moses had to offer the blood of the covenant in Exodus 24. Okay, Jesus, we're saying, is establishing a new covenant. This is what the wine is referring to. He's cutting a new covenant. If he wants to establish a new covenant, what must he do? There must be. Look, this is the, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. He's cutting a new covenant. That's what he does in his cross. And what the wine, therefore, is pointing to is this cutting of a new covenant that will be superior to the other one. Here's what Carson says. The water represents the old order of Jewish law and custom, which Jesus was to replace with something better. The old covenant, you see, was ceremony, regulation, Symbolized by these jars, okay? The point is, it doesn't evolve, and this is where Christendom, legalistic Christendom gets confused, is that it's not evolving from one to the other. One is being replaced by the other. The water was replaced by wine. Something superior overtook something inferior. This is what John says in chapter 1. Let me take it to verse 16 about this covenant. From the fullness of his grace, we've all received... Okay, grace, this is a more literal translation of the Greek scholars say, look, we receive grace instead of grace. So what is that saying about the two covenants? From the fullness of God's grace, we've received grace instead of grace. It's saying, first of all, the first covenant was a grace covenant. But what's happening to the first covenant? It's been replaced. By another grace covenant. But the one is saying this replacement is a superior one. One is replaced by the other. It's why when Jeremiah introduces this pan ready for us earlier, it used that key marketing term. Here is his next verse, please. What's that key marketing term he sells this by? A time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Okay? It's a new covenant with the house of Israel. We will not be like the covenant I made with them. What I'm trying to establish, this is, this is an introduction to my Galatians series, this sermon. We're trying to establish the fact that the new covenant doesn't just evolve from the old. It's not a continuation of the old. It doesn't have anything to do with the old in one sense. It's a brand new covenant. Brand new. And it's superior absolutely superior it's as superior as wine is to water it's that much difference that much contrast that's what it, it's a new covenant cut by jesus's blood and so the the wedding and the banquet and the wine is establishing what john will work out through his gospel what we look at in galatians is that jesus is about to bring to fulfillment the old covenant 
and establish a new covenant that is superior and new and unique. Superior, new, and unique. The Sinai covenant, friends, has not been revamped. It's been replaced. Look, it was bilateral. Do we, know, do we know what that means? The Sinai covenant was bilateral. Bi meaning two. Okay. What we, just, what we think it means? It was a bilateral covenant. It required two people to be actively engaged with one another for it to stay in force. What does that, what does that mean about that covenant and Israel? What did that mean in, in real terms, therefore? For that covenant to be in force and for the benefits of that covenant to be real, what needed to happen in that covenant? Yes, because it's bilateral. That's why it was weak. That's why it's water. That's the point. It was weak. It was water. Okay. Well, the new one is superior. It's the best wine. It's unilateral. What do we mean by that? It's not bilateral. It's unilateral. Yeah. Yeah. There is that. And what you're saying, it, it, we've got direct access to God. And what you're saying? It's dependent on only one person. Which means no matter how many times George breaks this commandment or covenant, he could break it a million times and a million sins. What happens to the covenant? It's still in force. Because it's unilateral. It's dependent only on Jesus. It's why it's superior. You cannot sin your way out of it. And that's not a license to sin. That's not any more of a license to sin than Romans 6. Romans 6. Shall we then sin? No, you cannot sin your way out of the new covenant. This why it's superior. The problem God had with Israel is that they were continually disobeying him. They were continually breaking his covenant. They were continually out of odds with him. And so he desires a superior covenant. One that is dependent only on himself and his word. It's the covenant of grace. By which we cannot bring ourselves out to. It's why Hebrews, Hebrews 8.13, he says, look, he tells us, just in case you don't believe me, listen to the writer of the Hebrews. By calling this covenant new, what was he doing to the old covenant? Getting rid of it. Getting rid of it. Look, he was making it, that's a strong word, even in English, obsolete and aging. And what will happen to it? It will. So my point to you, Christian, is that you are not under the mandate or the instruction or the oversight of all of that. You have to understand that. This is going to come out in Galatians. You have to give me 10 weeks in Galatians to fully argue this. Okay? But it means your life is not directed by that. But by that, that's what I mean. It's why you'll never hear me preaching the Ten Commandments. Never. Except to bring them into the new covenant and say what Jesus did with them. We are not under that covenant. That covenant does not tell us how to live. This is the covenant that tells us how to live. What that covenant does is to show us Jesus. I'm going to look at that again. This is a lot of Galatians stuff, which we'll get to. 
like I say, just introduction stuff, so please bear with me. So here's what Galatians says. And we have to understand this, that that law and that covenant, that part of the Bible, was always and only temporary. Listen to this, Galatians 3. So, so the law, the covenant, was put in charge to lead the Jewish people, poor us, to Christ, that they may be justified by faith. It led people to Christ, okay? Now that faith has come, now that Jesus has been revealed, what happens to that law system? It's gone. You're no longer under it. It no longer has any power. Look, Jesus doesn't say to Lynn, do not murder. He doesn't. That law is gone. What does he say to her instead in Matthew 5? Don't be angry with your brother. Yeah. Because look, here's the reality. Look, how many people in this room really need me to stand up here every Sunday and preach, don't murder, don't murder, don't murder? How many people need me to say that? I mean, who's going to do it this afternoon? Exactly. He was always inferior. He says instead, and he develops it throughout the gospel, love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you love your neighbor as yourself, what will you never do? Murder them. What will be anything else? And see, so you have to understand the old, everybody who loves the old and loves the commandments. I'm like, oh, it's inferior. Inferior, those Ten Commandments, they're inferior. Water, because the superior command of Jesus has replaced it, and that is love your neighbor as yourself. That, what did you say? It sums up the entire law. Because if you love your neighbor as yourself, you do not need law to govern your life. It sums it up. And so, it's a bit like this. Look, so Galatians 3 is that faith has come. We're no longer under the supervision of the law. Well, it means these two friends, and this is where legalistic Christianity gets it wrong. They say, oh yeah, the law was given to lead us to Christ, so let's get the law and badger people with it. It's not how we preach the gospel. Because Galatians is saying that that function has ceased. It did that in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, this, do you know what the law did? It, it badgered you. I won't do it for real because it may hurt. Okay, it, it banged away at you. It demoralized you. It showed you how awful you were so that what would you do in order to get salvation? You would do what David did in the Psalm, what in Luke, Jesus says the Pharisee did when he went to the temple, the Pharisee and the tax collector. What did you do? Because the law beat you and you knew you were awful. It led you to Jesus. How did it lead you to Jesus? What does a tax collector do in Luke 18? He cries out to God, I'm pathetic. Doesn't he? He doesn't try and be good. See what the Lord did? The Lord showed him he was pathetic. And so because he knew he was pathetic, what was his only course of action of getting right with God? Mercy. You know, woe to me, a sinner. Have mercy. That's how people were led to Christ in the Old Testament. When they realized they were spiritually bankrupt, they came to Jesus, spiritually as he were, and, and received from him. Okay, I got... I got Four minutes, so let me just try and conclude. The old is worse than the new. The new is the superior covenant. It's superior because it's no longer regulated by arduous 
realities. Look what Hebrews 10 says. Therefore, since we have confidence, we enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, a new and living way that is through the curtain that is, is his body. We have a great high priest over the house of God. Let us therefore draw near to God, having hearts sprinkled, cleansed from guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. The old, let me, let me ask you, how would you worship Jesus in the old covenant or worship God? What would you have to do? You'd, okay, you live in Malta. What would you have to do? You'd have to travel to Jerusalem. What do you need to bring with you? A sacrifice. So you, don't have, you can't carry an animal on a ship, so what would you have to do instead? Bring money. When you got to Jerusalem, what would you have to do? Buy one. Buy one. You'd then pass him over to who? The priest. What would he do? He would take it, he'd kill it, he'd get some of his blood. What would he do with the blood? Into the temple, into the Holy of Holies. For him to get in there, how long did he have to prepare before he could go in there? A whole system of preparation just to go in there. And when he went in there, what was he fearing? Yeah, that if he got one small element wrong, it's curtains. How have you come to Jesus this morning? You just turned up. You just turned up. There's no sheep bleating. There's no money being exchanged in the temple. There's no priest with his garments taking a sacrifice. And, and can you see what he's doing? He was saying to you, Lynn, you will never get near God. Ever. That's what he's saying. I'm going to try and get close to me. You will never get near him. Okay? What's the new covenant saying? What are you doing now? What have you done this morning? What are you doing right now? You're drawing near to him. It's brilliant. It's superior. The old, old friends was water. The new brings us into relationship with Jesus. I'm going to close there with just this point of application. It means these friends, you don't have to be in the cold. However alienated you feel from God, you don't need to be there. You don't need someone to bring you to God. You can come to him right now. In your heart, in your seat, you can wear whatever he takes your fancy. You can come in a heavy one. You don't even have to wash. You can come straight from work and you can have a bit of Jesus. I mean, your neighbor can come and just have to, we just you know we take that for so such granted don't we so it's so granted isn't it that that you know you can just come to jesus but there was a time when people couldn't but your neighbor can and your brother and your friend and your partner and so friends hey we have the greatest message in the world we have to get it to people that god is accessible to humans it doesn't need you, keep, need you to keep ten commandments. It just needs you to come and acknowledge your bankruptcy and is willing to meet you with mercy. That's the message we've got. It's a brilliant message. And secondly, those of us who've got the message, who know the message as such as you and I, do you know when we, when we miss out or deliberately 
you know, don't avail ourselves of, of the graces of this new covenant. We're fools. Do you know what the chief grace of this new covenant is? That you and I can gather every single week in a building like this one, corporately engage in high worship. I call it high worship because it's the high point of the, of the Christian's week. We can come in every week and engage in high worship, fellowship in Jesus, hear the Bible read, sing songs, hear the Bible expounded, engage with it. We have that liberty, that privilege. No one's asking you to buy a flight to, to, to Jerusalem and pick up an animal en route and have his sacrifice and stand outside because God doesn't want you anywhere near him. We're saying, you're welcome. And in a very special sense, you know, when we gather on Sunday mornings, it's what Hebrews says, do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together. It's a unique high point in Christian worship. We're real fools if we take that as a a la carte meal. You know, I'll come this week, but next week I'm going to do bingo or, or whatever else we like to do. Hey, do you know we have the privilege that no other, gener- other generations haven't had? Treat church as the high point of the new covenant, as the high point of worship, as the accessibility to God corporately, like we can never access him individually. And make church your number one commitment. Look, I'm going to tell you how it is, okay? You can always find me and send me back. There's 80 people in the books of this church, but there's only about 50 here. There's something amiss there. Well, I, I haven't seen a Sunday when, when the whole church is here. Can I look? Look, sometimes you have to work. Sometimes you're ill. You know, but there's no reason for you to be a bingo or for a walk down the park, or whatever else we do, hey, be here. And if you miss Sunday morning for whatever reason you really can't be here, you know, you know that I'm an excuse because you can come Sunday night and get the same again. The new covenant is superior. It's the best there's ever been. Take advantage of it. And so the water into wine is Jesus introducing that to us. There's more to come. We'll do another sermon, and we're starting Galatians in a few weeks. The Lord bless you.